It's Monday, April 30th, and this is The Daily Dive. On Friday, we got to hear the Golden State Killer speak for the first time as he was formally charged with two counts of murder in the 1978 killings of Katie and Brian Majori. Joseph D'Angelo entered court in a wheelchair and barely made a whisper as the judge spoke to him. We will speak to Sacramento Bee reporter Sam Stanton, who was in the room for the hearing, and also dive more in-depth into one of the more fascinating aspects of the case, how an open-source genealogy website helped connect the DNA dots. We will also talk about the latest comedic controversy at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Comedian Michelle Wolf is taking a lot of heat for some jokes about Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who many say jokes about her appearance were not in good taste. We will speak to Reuters political reporter Ginger Gibson, who was at the dinner about reactions in the room and also touch on what's next with the possible denuclearization of North Korea. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Is uh, Joseph James D'Angelo your true, correct legal name? Yeah. Yes. You're before the uh, Sacramento Superior Court for two reasons. One, to inform you there is a warrant, a hold for you, out of Ventura County for two counts of murder on or about February 2nd, 1978. You did willfully, unlawfully, and with malice aforethought. Murder Katie Majori. Joining us now is Sam Stanton. He's a reporter for the Sacramento Bee. Let's start on Friday. Joseph James D'Angelo was in court, ready to be formally charged with two counts of murder. You were in the room for that hearing. What was the mood of the room and and what was the presence? uh, What did it feel like when Joseph D'Angelo got wheeled into the courtroom? It was really an unusual uh, setting for Sacramento. I mean, I've covered a lot of court hearings here, but there must have been 200 media lined up in the hallway outside for hours waiting to get in. And they were using a smaller courtroom that is based on the first floor of the Sacramento County Jail here. And in addition to the media, there were members of the general public who started getting in line at 8.30 in the morning. Just not victims, just people who had lived through this reign of terror that Sacramento had endured. And so, you know, we all jammed into the court waiting to see him. And typically what they'll do is they'll bring the suspect in through a door that leads to a steel cage in the courtroom. But because Mr. D'Angelo was in a wheelchair, uh, they wheeled him in from the judge's chambers directly in front of the judge and in front of the cameras. Uh, He was only a few feet from some of the victims' families who were seated in the front row along with uh, District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert and some others. Do we know why he was in the wheelchair? Well, that's a matter of dispute. Uh, there, I've been told that he had complained of high blood pressure. He appeared extremely feeble. You could barely hear him. He whispered yes when asked if that was his name. He whispered, I have a lawyer, when asked if he would accept the public defender, and he ended up getting assigned the public defender. But there are two police officers who were involved in the surveillance of him before his arrest who said, he appeared perfectly healthy. He was riding his motorcycle at 100 miles an hour around town, running stop signs. He was apparently an avid bicyclist. He had been building a table the day he was arrested. So prior to his uh, capture, there were no signs that he was ill. Let's move on to one of the more fascinating aspects of this story, and it's how they connected the DNA. Sample from the you know, the East Area of Golden State Killer was used in genealogy sites. And from there, uh, 
a family lineage was developed, and from that, a lot, a lot of work was done by detectives. They used a website called jedmatch.com to find somebody in his family. Is this how it works? Right. What they did is they, let's say you sent your information, your saliva into something like Ancestry.com, and they send you back a computer code uh, of your genetic background. Sometime in the past, one of his distant relatives sent that kind of code into GEDmatch, seeking more information on who some of his relatives, his or her relatives might be. The DA's office took the DNA that they had from six different murders, two in Ventura County in 1980 and four others in um, Orange County, and they loaded their computer code into the GEDmatch site, and they found sort of a match, close enough for them to take another look. And what that led them to was, as it's been described to me, is a very large family tree of possibilities. And so they started picking off the possibilities one by one. If it was a woman, it was automatically disqualified. If it was someone in their 30s, disqualified. And they kept going until they got to people who were the right age. And then they started looking, do these people have any connections to California? And this apparently took months. And they finally got to D'Angelo. And, of course, he's the right age. He lives in California. He actually lives right in the center of the cluster of attacks that that are attributed to the East Area Rapist. So that was when they began their surveillance of him. It's pretty amazing. I went on to GEDmatch.com just briefly to see what the layout is, see what it looks like, see how the connections are made. And it's really just tables and codes and numbers. And it really seems like a daunting task to try to it's, sift it's through all that. It's very confusing. I did the same thing you did. It almost doesn't make sense. I watched a, uh, a how-to video on how to use the website so you can understand a little bit better. And yeah, it, it, it seemed like this would take forever to go through. Yeah, and it's funny, the um, the officer who was uh, behind this idea, he's a recently retired investigator from Contra Costa County, told one of our reporters for a weekend story here that he actually drove out to D'Angelo's house and sat out in front of it thinking about going up and knocking on the door before he changed his mind and they decided to pursue the surveillance and get the DNA matches and see if he was a match. Yeah, I did read that. It kind of gave me chills because he was curious whether he should go in and confront him or not and he decided this guy could be dangerous i should not do this it's a bad idea Um, right another one of the you know how they narrowed it down uh, it was just really interesting they said that according to one of his surviving victims they overheard him sobbing and saying i hate you bonnie i hate you bonnie and they thought investigators thought it was very significant and after searching they found out that d'angelo had been engaged to a woman named bonnie in 1970 or so so just right, and that's that's a woman who still lives here in town. In fact, um, who has not responded to my calls, but uh, they know who she is. Uh, I believe she's spoken with the uh, DA's investigators since the arrest, so I'm sure she'll be part of the case. Back to Jedmatch for a second. Do you know anything about laws, California laws, related to this familial DNA searching? I know that they limit some of these searches in the state's database, but these open source websites are pretty much fair game. Right. There's a national criminal database of these uh, DNA matches. There's a state database. There's even a Sacramento County database here. 
but they don't use those unless they have a solid suspect they're looking for. They don't use them for fishing expeditions, for instance. But these open source ones, the law enforcement's position is anybody can go on and look. And the investigator who did it in this instance used an alias to go in and start searching. Now, there are people who believe the validity of the evidence will be challenged in court. I'm sure it will be by his public defender, Diane Howard. But a lot of things are going to be challenged, and I don't think they're too concerned that that's going to get this case thrown out, frankly. Right, because the DNA they ended up matching was actual DNA from D'Angelo and then stuff that they had from a crime scene. Right, that's what they say. Uh, And we don't know what else they have. They've been out you know, searching his house. And one of the really odd things about this case is that the East Area Rapist took trophies from his victims, a set of china, class rings, jewelry, things of that nature. And all of the detectives who worked the case back in the 80s and 70s, who I've spoken to, are convinced that the rapist kept that material. So if those items turned up in his house, that'll be another line of evidence for them. You also had a chance to speak to Sheriff Scott Jones uh, from Sacramento County there. Has D'Angelo been cooperating with them? In no. No, I've, I've had a couple people tell me that they went in to interview him, and when they did, he basically was muttering, staring face down at the table. There was no confession. Uh, there was no real discussion from what I've been told. And he apparently looked somewhat like he looked in court to us just dazed and confused. He's back in court on May 14th. Do we know what's happening then? It'll just be another status conference. Eventually, the prosecutors are going to have to figure out where they try these cases. And the DA here has said she wouldn't be surprised if they end up moving it to a Southern California location because 10 of the 12 murders that he allegedly was involved in were committed down there. But her only caveat is that it has to be a joint prosecution. All the counties have to have people present to help prosecute. Sam Stanton, reporter for the Sacramento Beat, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Good evening. Here we are, the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Like a porn star says when she's about to have sex with a Trump, let's get this over with. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson. She's a political reporter for Reuters. Let's start off by talking about the White House Correspondents' Dinner. You were actually there. You got to be in the room for a lot of the festivities, the jokes and everything. I don't think a lot of people are really familiar with what happens at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. The comedy routine always gets a lot of billing because there's always pretty rough jokes aimed at whatever current administration is there. What else happens during the White House Correspondents' Dinner? About a little less, I think, 3,000 people cram into the largest ballroom in Washington. Everyone gets very dressed up. There's lots of drinking beforehand, during, and after. And so there's a long program. There's dinner, and then they present scholarship winners, college students that um, the dinner is funds the scholarships for them, and then a group of journalists who win awards. The president of the association gives a speech. The comedian gives a speech, and in previous years when the president attends, the president would also give a speech. The dinner itself goes on two hours, two and a half hours. It's the one comedian spot that gets all the attention, and and in this 
Spears dinner, it was sort of started off like many others. You're expecting the comedians to sort of push the envelope a little, sort of poke at the president, at journalists. And we saw that, and then it sort of went off the rails and was a little bit more than I think uh, almost anyone in the room was expecting. Who was this year's comedic guest? Her name is Michelle Wolf. She's a comedian on Comedy Central and has a reputation of being critical of the president and a little raunchy. That shouldn't have surprised anyone. Let's get down to some of the jokes. The flack she received the most for was uh, jokes about Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the press secretary. We are graced with Sarah's presence tonight. I have to say I'm a little starstruck. I love you as Aunt Lydia on The Handmaid's Tale. (laughs) Mike Pence, if you haven't seen it, you would love it. I know she was sitting right on the front table right next to her while Michelle Wolf was delivering her routine. And I saw video of it. Everybody at the front table is kind of smiling. And then as soon as the joke started, you start seeing stone faces and nobody's laughing anymore. What was the mood in the room when that was going down? When she got to the jokes about Sarah, the room got very quiet. There were a handful of people laughing. And if you listen to audio, you might hear a couple of chuckles. I actually really like Sarah. I think she's very resourceful. Like she burns facts. And then she uses that ash to create a perfect smoky eye. (laughs) Like, maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's lies. But I think that, uh, particularly because it it, it seemed as if the first joke, one of the first jokes she told about Sarah, was making fun of her appearance. She said she looked like a character in The Handmaid's Tale, who intentionally is sort of like elderly and frumpy. And I think that that immediately set a tone that people were sort of surprised. It was clear she had lost the room. (laughs) Were you sitting next to any White House staffers or anybody from the administration that you can see what their reaction was? I was. I was sitting next to a White House staffer. And at the table next to mine on the other side of me, there was a, a staffer from House Speaker Paul Ryan's office. I can tell you both of them were not amused. I know that the White House staffer next to me said she had considered what she would do if people were going to get up and leave, that she thought had Sarah possibly stood up to leave, she would have also left. We were having a great time. We were enjoying each other company at dinner, and that really became a moment where it was very difficult. And I know after it was over, I I remarked to her that that had sort of gone in a direction we weren't expecting and gotten a little rough, and she said, you know, she was that moment when you're like, is everyone thinking the same thing I am? Kind of like, wow, okay, it is not just me. It's everyone here that thought that got a little little out of hand. Yeah, and Michelle Wolf was defending herself on Twitter. I saw she's saying, I was describing despicable behavior of hers, but you guys are making it all about her looks. But I don't think that's really going anywhere. <laughs> the reaction was pretty swift where a lot of people were hitting on her for, for doing that. I think it was a pretty pretty quick response, and I think that... You know, she can say, then don't don't hate on my speech because of one joke. Um, but I think that maybe that's a, a little bit of lessons of what it's like to be in public scrutiny when uh, people don't like one thing that you do and then aren't going to be complimentary of even the things that they would have otherwise liked that you do. A little bit of a, of a lesson in what it's like to be in Washington or maybe even what it's like to be Sarah or the president. Right. I think that there is always an expectation there's going to be jokes about the president and the administration, and and you do expect that. And perhaps maybe I, I have heard criticism that 
They didn't think any of her jokes crossed the line, that they didn't think that the jokes that were perceived by many in the room to be about her looks were actually about her looks, and that um, that it was all within fair game of a comedian. I have seen some discussions today among journalists about whether maybe we should stop holding roasts of the administration uh, as part of our annual dinner, and, and there might be some examination of that going forward as well. Before we let you go, I wanted to also touch on some of the other big news over the week. And the South Korean government has said that Kim Jong-un had told President Moon Jae-in that he would abandon all his nuclear weapons if the United States agreed to formally end the Korean War and to promise not to invade the country. What happened between the two uh, Korean presidents over the weekend? We can see even more positive signs coming out of the Korean Peninsula that these two presidents are talking to each other and reaching this agreement in which North Korea would abandon, shut down their nuclear program in exchange for promise from the United States to not invade their country. This would be pretty remarkable. It would be a pretty big victory in trying to bring some peace and stability to the region. The next question is going to be what else uh, do they want in exchange for the United States? They are quite economically isolated at this point. There are limits on who can trade and do business with them, where they can bank, how they can get money. And I, and I suspect that the next discussion that is going to be had is if they do sort of break down their program, do we start lessening some of those uh, economic controls and sanctions? And that's going to be a real debate, uh, and, and we'll see where that goes. But there's a lot of skepticism. Uh, I know Secretary of State Mike Pompeo saying all we want is the complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization with North Korea. We'll see how the negotiations proceed, but we're going to do it in a fundamentally different way than the previous efforts to persuade the North Koreans to get rid of their nuclear weapons program. We have, we have our eyes wide open. Keep in mind, this is not the first agreement that has been negotiated with the North Koreans, and we don't remember the great deal that was struck by Bill Clinton because it did fall apart later and did not continue to ensure that they had no nuclear weapons, as we know. So you can't judge for a lifetime what it is out the gate, but uh, it is showing optimistic signs. And if those signs turn into solid movement and that solid movement is allowed to remain, this could be a pretty great foreign policy accomplishment for President Trump. Definitely. And this is all a precursor leading up to the eventual meeting that Kim Jong-un is going to have with President Trump. Do we know anything about that? We know that they're looking at a place like Singapore, uh, which would be not that far away. They also have talked about doing it in the DMZ, where the North and South Korean president uh, met uh, this last weekend, uh, last week. It's possible they could choose one of those places. There is uh, a lot of other factors here that they have to consider. Apparently, there's some issues with whether or not Kim Jong-un has a capable plane to take him to one of these summits he can fly himself and some concern that if he left his country he could be subject to a coup so there's a lot of talk about those factors and trying to figure out where to, to hold the event all right ginger gibson she's a political reporter for reuters thank you very much for joining us thanks for having me all right that's it for today join us on social media at daily dive pod on twitter and daily dive podcast on facebook Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.